need somebody Help Not just anybody Help You know I need someone Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 312 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is mental health care for mental illness that endangers lives of others. Mental health care for an individual with a serious mental illness that apparently led to the killing of another person is complicated by the necessary involvement of the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system has a lengthy history centered on the question of what's known as the McNaughton Rule, which was the first and is the most famous legal test for insanity. In 1843, Daniel McNaughton shot and killed the secretary of the British Prime Minister, believing that the Prime Minister was conspiring against him. The court acquitted McNaughton, and this is in quotation marks, by reason of insanity. He was placed in a mental institution for the rest of his life, but the acquittal caused such a public uproar that Queen Victoria ordered the court to develop a stricter test for insanity. Now, the McNaughton rule then created a presumption of sanity, meaning that it left the defense to prove that the accused could not distinguish right from wrong at the time of the killing. The rule became the standard for insanity, this is in the criminal courts, in the US and the UK, and is still the standard for insanity in many places. But the McNaughton rule also creates a legacy of continuing controversy, which is why our topic, mental health care for mental illness that endangers lives, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi. Laurie is a registered psychologist in Ontario who obtained her PhD from York University in 1998. She's currently in private practice in Hamilton, Ontario, where she specializes in psychological assessment and treatment of adults with various clinical conditions, including grief and trauma in individuals who've been impacted by a violent crime, a traumatic incident, or who have experienced significant loss. She's currently the professional consultant to bereaved families of Ontario, Hamilton Burlington chapter, and she appeared as a witness before the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights. That's at the federal level. She was opposing the non Criminally Responsible Reform Act. For her personal and professional advocacy in promoting social justice for those living with mental illness, she was the recipient of the Outstanding Achievement Award presented by the Schizophrenia Society of Canada in 2013. So welcome to the show, Laurie. Gordon. Okay, now my first question for you is this. Please tell us some more about your life, your career and your life, and your life as a family caregiver, that is to say your life as a mom. Please tell us about that. Yeah. 
As you said, I'm a psychologist in, in private practice in here in Hamilton, Ontario. And a lot of my work, um, I do work with people who've experienced significant and often traumatic loss. I work with a lot of family members of homicide victims. Um, and I deal a lot in the practice with, with their grief and their trauma as they progress through the criminal justice system. I'm outside of work. I'm the mother of three children, two living. Um, Ethan and Abigail are my living children, and Zachary, my firstborn son, was killed Back in 1997, at the age of two and a half, by an individual who suffered from a serious mental illness. Now, let's follow on that point, Laurie. Um, please tell us more about the killing of your son by the woman with mental illness. Laurie? Yeah, we um, had moved into a new neighborhood before I came, became pregnant with my first son and moved in beside a, a woman of Italian descent who we were quite friendly with initially. And then as uh, time went on and then I became pregnant, her behavior started to, to change. Um, she became initially... Um, more of a nuisance, some harassment, um, but then her behavior escalated and, and became more aggressive and, and sometimes even violent. And the police had been called to our home numerous times um, because we could sense that something wasn't right with our neighbor. And we often spoke with our neighbor's daughter who lived with her, um, who also sensed that something wasn't right and, and did try to, um, she actually tried to have her mother apprehended under the Mental Health Act. Um, so this went on from my pregnancy and through Zachary's early years. And um, like I said, it escalated over time. And then on March 27, 1997, Zachary was outside playing um, with his best friend, and she was pulling him in a wagon. And uh, my neighbor came out of her back door into an alleyway in the neighborhood with a kitchen knife tucked under her cape, and she stabbed Zachary 12 times, leading to his death. Laurie, um, I'm just pausing in respect for you and for your son and for your family Thank because you. you've been very open with us about what is a cat catastrophic situation for mm -hmm. any family to go through. Now, okay, my next question is for you, mm -hmm. and that is in this way. Please tell us about the long-term effects that the killing of your son have had on you, the long-term effects on you. Sorry? Well, I mean, the, the, the grief is, is a lifelong process, um, and you're forever impacted by the death of your child, and it's further complicated when the criminal justice system is involved you know, for the first year, Gordon, I was probably rendered non-functional. I didn't work. I didn't even drive. 
Um, I had good support, both professional support and uh, in terms of counseling and also a very supportive family because we had to endure a trial. And then subsequent to that, we also endured a six-week inquest um, given the the long contact we had with our neighbor and the difficulty accessing service for her. Uh, so the... I mean, the, the death of Zachary, like I said, is, is always with me. Uh, I focused a lot, though, Gordon, on, on my healing and um, keeping Zachary's memory alive and honoring him in, you know, in my social relationships and in our family. Zachary's siblings know very much about their brother, even though they were born after his death. Um, so we've worked hard to, to somehow survive the tragedy and live again, um, carrying Zachary forward with us and honoring his life and his memory. Laurie, what that means then is that you've lived the experience, um, of many of the people in many ways whom you are providing professional services to. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, is that right? And if it is right, please let us know how you, if you do, explain this experience that you've had um, in your discussions with the people you see. Or maybe you've chosen not to share it. Please discuss mm-hmm. that with us. Yeah, a lot of the people I work with in my practice are... Uh, bereaved parents, and like I said earlier, many of them are parents of homicide victims, and in, I mean, in Hamilton, uh, Zachary's murder was very public, um, so some people come to me knowing already of my circumstance, and I think that that helps them to have the sense that I may be someone who can get what many um, people don't get. Um, so I think they they feel that when they come in. Some of my clients don't know, and I don't always share that. The focus is very much on, on their recovery and their healing, but if my self-disclosure can help them in terms of how I managed some part of my my grief and trauma, then I will share that with them within our our working relationship. Now, just to quickly just explore that a little bit more, Mm -hmm. Um, to what extent are the people you see willing to share their deepest emotions with you Mm -hmm. in the way that you've just shared your deepest emotions with us? Mm -hmm. How open it? our people, in other words, to this kind of intense discussion. Laurie? I think as the relationship develops, uh, they often feel very, very safe in in our environment. And over time, and for everybody, that time frame is is different, um, they do open up. And, you know, I do consider myself privileged to be able to bear witness to that very private and intense emotional um, pain that my clients are willing to share. Like I said, some people, they can share it within the first few months, 
some people, Gordon, they really struggle. And, and I think of one client, it, it probably took her several years to be able to really open up to the, to the, the intensity of her pain. Now, very quick question, because we're going to run out of time on this segment. But to what extent, if at all, does spirituality play a part in this uh, caring that you're providing, either on the part of the individual you're providing it to mm-hmm. or uh, as something that you're also um, guided by? Mm-hmm. What would you say? I think um, it depends on the individual. I don't typically share my spiritual beliefs um, just Sort of that's a sort of a boundary that I I maintain within my practice for for individuals who have a strong faith that can help sometimes in their their healing and recovery. For other folks, they um, they really challenge sort of their faith, um, wondering you know how how God could could have let this happen. So in terms of individuals' healing and recovery. Their spirituality can have um, can have some benefits. Right. Now we've come to the time when we need to take the break. This is where I always say to everybody, this is where we have to pay the rent. So we'll right. do that now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is this is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back 
to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi. Our topic is mental health care for mental illness that endangers lives of others. Laurie, now let's talk about the ways in which justice systems deal with cases of individuals with serious mental illnesses who have actually killed someone and the ways in which the healthcare systems care for individuals whose serious mental illnesses have caused them to kill someone and the principle of not criminally responsible. So, Laurie, first question, what's your opinion of the ways justice systems deal with cases of individuals with serious mental illnesses who've killed someone? Laurie? Yeah. Well, in um, in Ontario, uh, just as as by way of education, I guess first of all, in Canada, um, when you kill someone, like you've mentioned, you're dealt with by our criminal justice system, and you can you can land up in one of two streams. Um, if at the time of the act um, you have a mental disorder and at the time of the act it has rendered you unable to appreciate the nature of the act and also that the act was wrong, then you would be found not criminally responsible and dealt with by the forensic mental health system, which is one of treatment and rehabilitation. Um, and if you have a serious mental illness but were not found um, to, at the time of the act, if you were able to appreciate that the act and that it was wrong, then you would be dealt with um, by the correctional system, and you would go into jail for a, right. a, for a you know, a definite sentence. Whereas with the NCR system, it's, it's indefinite because they provide rehabilitation and then they assess a level of risk. In my experience and, and the research, um, the NCR regime works quite well. The rates of recidivism for people who are found NCR are quite low. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you, it's basically the same question, but with a different setting. Mm -hmm. Now, what's your opinion of the ways healthcare systems care for individuals with serious mental illnesses who've killed somebody? In other words, the people who um, are returned to the healthcare system from the courts, shall we Mm -hmm. say. Laurie, how how do those uh, systems of care work and what do you think of them? Mm-hmm. Um, the healthcare system overall, I think the healthcare system still, unfortunately, continues to deal poorly with individuals who have serious mental illness. Um, they don't, I mean, there's a number of, of I guess, flaws, if you will. Um, they often do not speak to family members who sometimes have some of the most critical information when they're assessing how someone's responding to treatment and rehabilitation and any, any ongoing risk factors. Um, there's, well, poor access to mental health services, um, there's often poor communication among service providers. There's often poor follow-up for people with serious mental illness. Um, and overall, there's quite poor funding for mental health services. 
Now, I'm going to go back into the question of not criminally responsible NCR. Okay. As, as so many people call it. Mm-hmm. You've already you've already um, explained its principle, but I want to go back into more detail okay. so that you can tell us um, how it operates and leave us with a very clear impression mm-hmm. of how it operates and the basis of your opinion. So in other words, tell us more about the NCR system and the way it works. And if you've got any examples to talk about, um, not obviously identifying anybody, but Mm -hmm. just to give us an instance, that would be very helpful. Laurie? Okay. Well, I think first off, um, the issue of criminal responsibility is probably something that not many people even think about. I think when we think when a murder has been committed, we think that someone will sort of do their time in jail. Um, but actually, the, you know, the courts do turn their their mind to whether the individual who committed the act committed it out of, you know, a sound mind or an ill mind. And in Canada, um, the criminal code does allow for this defense of a mental disorder. This used to be called, I think you mentioned it earlier, um, not guilty by reason of insanity. But now we refer to it as not criminally responsible. And what this states is that an individual would be um, not criminally responsible for an act if they committed this act or offense while they were suffering from a mental disorder, which um, rendered them incapable of appreciating the nature of the act and also of knowing that it was wrong. Every, okay. In the NCR system, I mean, people are presumed at the outset not to suffer from a mental disorder, so it's the burden of proof is on the party who raises the issue. So you have to prove that the individual had a mental disorder at the time of the offense and that that rendered them unable to appreciate the nature of the act and that they didn't know it was right or wrong. And I can actually use the instance of my son and my neighbor to explain that a bit more. Um, My neighbor suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. And when she killed my son, it was her belief her son had died um, prior to Zachary, and she believed that the spirit of her son resided within Zachary. So when she stabbed Zachary, she was doing that to release the spirit of her son, which she believed resided within my son. Um, I struggled to understand this myself as Zachary's mom because when she was apprehended after she stabbed him, she had her bus money and she was going to turn herself in, which I thought that meant that she understood that the act was wrong, as did the jury in the case. However, I learned that it was morally necessary in her mind because she was releasing the spirit of her son. So that's where it sort of comes in, not only legally, um, but morally right or wrong. 
Now, just to pursue that a little bit further, mm-hmm. the this question of um, figuring out what it all means at the moment of the killing, let's right. use that word, Yeah. Um, how actually in practice do the courts address that question? Is it a, is it a matter of calling on psychiatrists, experts like you? Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, what kind of evidence do they give? And if they rely on other information, what kind of information is it? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, all, yes, there would be um, a, a, a psychiatric assessment um, carried out typically by a forensic psychiatrist who would look at, um, obviously, the individual's behavior at the time of the act, um, what they were thinking at the time, and often such an assessment would also take into account any uh, historical information that was available to the psychiatrist doing the assessment. So typically there, there may be one or more than one, um, you know, the, the, like the Crown may have a psychiatrist come forward and the defense may have a psychiatrist come forward. In our case, in our, they both agreed on the finding. That doesn't always happen, but um, in our case they did. The opinions were consistent. Now, you just to go back to your answer to my previous question, you mm-hmm. mentioned that the healthcare system doesn't always communicate well with family caregivers mm-hmm. and families. Have you any quick explanation of why they don't communicate well with families? I think that that they that they may be limited or or feel that they're limited by privacy legislation that they can't um, reveal the individual's, you know, personal health information to family members. And they are limited in terms of sharing that information. Um, I think what we have to try and work on is is the family members are open to to giving that information to the treating practitioners. Um, they don't need... They don't need consent. I mean, the psychiatrist can. Oh, it can't work that way, but family members can provide the information to open up the communication. So family members are limited in terms of the information they can receive from the psychiatrist. And many family members, Gordon, actually um, find that to be uh, quite detrimental to the care of their of their loved one. Right. Very clear point there. Thank you. Now, once again, it's time for the break, so we'll take that now. This is Dr. Gordon Abney. My guest is Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi, listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, 
strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Lori Triano Anti Dormi. Our topic is mental health care for mental illness that endangers lives of others. Laurie, now let's talk about the changes you want to see in the way justice systems deal with cases of individuals with serious mental illnesses who've actually killed someone and changes in the way healthcare systems care for individuals with serious mental illnesses who have, have killed someone or who could possibly kill someone. So first of all, Laurie, what changes do you or don't you want to see in the way justice systems deal with cases of individuals with serious mental illnesses who've actually killed someone. Lori? In, in uh, the current NCR legislation, like I said earlier, Gordon, I feel that that is, is working well in my case. The woman who killed Zachary is, is still receiving treatment. Um, the recidivism rates, like I mentioned earlier, are quite low. So the current NCR system, I believe that it does deal well with individuals who have a serious mental illness. Recently in in Canada, they were proposing um, some, well, actually, it has received royal assent. So there was a new bill, Bill C-14, which created some changes to the justice system. Um, that I opposed when I was before the standing committee. These were lengthening, um, labeling some people high-risk accused, for example, based on the nature of the offense, and then increasing the period of review of these individuals from one to three years. Um, I opposed that, Gordon, because, uh, first of all, it was very stigmatizing, it didn't focus on rehabilitation. It would be punitive to block them away for three years rather than consider their rehabilitative gains. Um, and it wasn't necessary. 
So, unfortunately, the system that we previously had was working well. We'll have to see what happens with the new system. Right. So, just to put some words into your mouth, basically, you disagree with the reform uh, which effectively tightened up um, the the act um, that governs these matters. Is that right? Yes, I opposed the NCR Reform Act uh, because I thought it was stigmatizing to create this high-risk accused based on brutality of the crime. Brutality of the crime doesn't determine risk, so it was ill-informed. And if you are a high-risk accused, typically in, in the review board reviews the case and the individual's treatment and considers their level of risk, considering public safety every year. With the new bill, the new law, they, they can extend that now to three years, which really goes against the notion of rehabilitation. Okay, uh, very clear. Now, next question for you is, what changes do you or don't you want to see in the ways healthcare systems care for individuals with serious mental illnesses where the individuals have actually killed someone? Mm-hmm. Sorry? So the, if the individual has killed someone, been found NCR, and then ends up in the um, mental health forensic system, like I said, I think that that, that system is, is, is doing doing well in terms of continuing to protect Canadians from from harm from these individuals i mean within the the system i think there's always more room for um a communication between uh treatment providers and family members and, you know, improved funding and resources. I don't think we have enough forensic beds, for instance. Um, so I think improved funding. But currently, like I said, in the, if they're in the forensic mental health system, it, it seems to be working well in terms of rehabilitation. So just to summarize back to you what, what I'm hearing, it, you're saying more of the same. Is that right? Yeah, more of the same, maybe more um, more communication. I mean, sometimes when I speak with, with family members, um, the challenge is the communication, right, so that flow of information. And sometimes I think that, like I, I had indicated earlier, family members sometimes have some of the more critical information, and, and and they should be listened to. And family members are free to provide that information to the health care providers. Right. Okay, next question. It's the same question, but with a different ending to it. Mm-hmm. What, what changes do you or don't you want to see in the ways healthcare care systems care for individuals with serious mental, mental illnesses which could lead the individuals to kill someone? Mm-hmm. What changes? What changes do you want to see, or don't you want to see there, Laurie? I think that's where a lot of the focus needs to be, Gordon, in terms of not changing like they have done in terms of the NCR legislation, but putting services into place 
for better treatment for individuals with serious mental illness. So again, it's that increased funding, increased access to service. It's very hard. I work in the community, and it's very hard for people to access service. It's a very hard system to navigate. People often don't know where to go. Um, Wait lists are extremely long. Um, I would like to see some improved resources within the community if somebody is having difficulty that they could have some service, not necessarily to be locked away in the hospital, but to be provided some service in the community. I think one thing that I would really like to see that would be important is follow-up. A lot of the high-profile cases in Canada where an individual has killed somebody, an individual who suffers a serious mental illness has killed someone, those individuals have often been in the healthcare system prior to the offense. So there has been either limited resources or no follow-up. Or maybe not, or sometimes I even wonder about... Laurie, that raises the question of how much information flows from families and family caregivers to whoever's doing the assessment, the psychiatrist or anybody else who's doing it. And that raises again the question, or the point you've made several times, which is that... um, there's a sort of privacy concern. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the other hand, the information, and I know I'm biased on this one because I'm promoting the idea of family caregiving mm-hmm. uh, because I think it's vital. But the idea, and if I can put it to you in these straight terms, mothers in particular, but also fathers and families, mm-hmm. are the ones who are most likely to be the early the detectors of the early signs that things are going wrong, that there's a risk developing. So surely they should be listened to. Now, I know that's a leading and loaded question, but what do you think, Laurie? I I wholeheartedly agree that um, family members should be asked and should be listened to, and I don't think that often they are listened to. Often they're not even asked. Um, in our situation, my neighbor's daughter, she tried to have her mother apprehended. She tried to speak to her mother's symptoms, um, but I'm not sure where that information went. So I think it's very important for the healthcare providers, the assessors, the psychiatrists, to gather that information from some of the most informed people, which are the family members. And although, like we said, the privacy legislation does restrict what the psychiatrist or the healthcare provider can share with the family, I think that it's important, not at a time of crisis, but when the family member is, is doing somewhat better, to work out a plan that where, where, the fam, where the individual with mental illness allows for that consent. So they sign a release or a consent to say, you know, when I'm not well, you can talk to my family. And that's something um, that needs to be part of the sort of planning of care, doesn't it? That is anticipating things that 
could happen and preparing the ground for them rather than having to deal with them over the telephone in an urgent situation. Um, Laurie, uh, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this particularly important segment, but just I would just like to emphasize back to you what I'm taking from this, and that is the sense that we need to be looking at the situation where somebody's got a serious mental illness and it's recognized as such, mm-hmm. uh, and that they could be at risk of harming someone or killing someone. Mm-hmm. And that's where the healthcare system um, needs more and better information and to take account of the possibilities that might happen and not just to be looking after, and though they do it well, uh, when people when they've actually committed a killing and that's I think an enormously powerful message and um, I'm going to be asking you in the next segment which we'll go to in shortly mm-hmm. um, what we what you would like to see done to bring those changes about so we'll take the break now this is Dr. Gordon Atherley my guest is Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio please stay with us we will be back Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Laurie Triano Antidomi. Our topic is mental health care for mental illness that endangers lives of others. Laurie, now let's talk about what more you would like to do 
and what more you would like to see done to bring the changes you want to see in healthcare systems, caring for individuals with serious mental illnesses who have either killed someone or whose serious mental illness could, could, I emphasize that, cause them to kill someone. So first of all, first question, what more would you like to do to help the healthcare systems care for individuals in the circumstances that we've talked about, namely that they've actually killed somebody? Mm -hmm. Laurie? In terms of what I personally would like to do, um, yes. I think that that's a that's a, a, a tough question because I often struggle um, in the community as a private practitioner to even myself sometimes access the services or the resources or even learn what's out there for for family members. Um, so if there's anything that I personally could do, it would be, I think, to, to somehow help facilitate better coordination of services or resources that even are available because I find that in the community, people operate in their own silos, and there's just not enough sort of coordination and collaboration. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, starting more of a networking system might be something that on a personal level I could try to aspire to. Um, I'll make a comment about that <laughs> in, at the end, but I want to ask you the next question, and they're all very similar questions. What more would you like to see done by way of helping healthcare systems care for individuals with serious mental illnesses which could cause them to kill somebody? Mm -hmm. I think, um, like we've said, in terms of the healthcare system, I mean, often it comes down to uh, more dollars. I mean, mental health, sadly, uh, gets such little of the healthcare dollars. So improved funding and improved access, I think, are, are huge. And, and also a focus on, on rehabilitation is important as well. I think you've been, been quite careful to, to always use the word sort of which could cause them because many people with serious mental illness, as you know, are not violent. I mean, it's a very small percentage that we're talking about. So improved, I mean, even things like improved housing, uh, improved places for them to go in the community to just reduce their, their level of stress because that stress level exacerbates their illness. Now, let's go to um, your elevator pitch, um, your message. Your message for family caregivers who are worried about a family member who is living with a serious mental illness. And you've rightly said, um, these are rare, rare situations, but they occur. Mm -hmm. So family members living with a serious mental illness, which could possibly lead to violence towards or even the killing of someone. Mm -hmm. So what's your message to family caregivers in those situations? Mm -hmm. I think it, it's it's so tough because, like we said earlier, often the healthcare providers don't seem to open their ear to family members, which is very frustrating. Um, so I would encourage a family members to to not give up. You know, to to keep 
pushing till they find that provider who is willing to work with them so that they could share the concerns and the risk factors, which would be within their concerns. And I think, too, to to develop a plan um, for what their family member's treatment or rehabilitation plan might look like. So to, to try and find a healthcare provider, I guess, who's willing to listen and willing to plan. Right. Now, you said earlier in this segment, um, when I asked you what you would like to do, you Mm -hmm. basically said that you would like to, in effect, start organizing things in your community. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to take you a step further than that. Do you think um, there's a need for organization among family caregivers with people like you um, so that collectively their voices are heard by the healthcare system, politicians and professionals. Um, do you see, in other words, the organization of family caregivers in, in a sort of political, social sense as something that's important? What do you think? Oh, I think it's very important that uh, family members come together to be heard. I know at conferences where there's people with lived experience and in my own uh, practice, um, there's many family members who talk about the difficulty in terms of sharing information and accessing service. So I I think for them to come together would, uh, you know, a stronger collective voice might have a chance of making making a difference. Right. Now, you mentioned information. Uh, You've mentioned it several times. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. How good or otherwise is the information that's available to families who are in the kind of situations we're talking about? Mm -hmm. Where do they get the information from and how useful is it to them? What do you think? I, I think that the information is not, is, is difficult to access. Um, you know, in my practice, I, I see a lot of people with family members who have mental illness who don't know where to access service. And, you know, often for OHIP, like pro- provincially funded services, the waits are so long and you try to look for community resources, people don't know where to begin. Um, so it's very difficult for family members to know where to look, to know who can help them, and even to know what might help them. Now, follow-on questions to that point, mm-hmm. um, which is this, that as you know, healthcare professionals, particularly doctors and nurses, but all healthcare professionals, have access to things called clinical practice guidelines, which is basically a kind of checklist of things that, you need to do Mm -hmm. as a professional or provide or think about or explore. Do you think there's any role for family caregiver guidelines? That is to say guidelines that help family caregivers once a diagnosis has been made or there's a suspicion of a diagnosis, here's information which guides them 
in what they should know, what they should understand, what they should expect, where they should look for help, and things like that. What's your What's your reaction to that? Oh, I think that would be very beneficial to to family members because they are at such a loss. And I mean, it, it amazes me sometimes when I think of in our situation. Um, so that my neighbor's daughter was informed by somebody, you know, that her mother suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, and she knew I was a psychologist. So she she came to me one day and she said, you know, Lori, um, they told me my mother suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. What is that? I mean, I think that just highlights the need, you know, the great need for education for family members in terms of, you know, what what defines the illness, you know, what the symptoms are, how we can treat the symptoms, you know, what their family member might benefit from, and then, like you said, how to access that. So guidelines right. for family members would, I think, be be welcome. Very good. Now, we're coming to the end of this um, episode of mm-hmm. Family Caregivers Unite. And first of all, I just want to say to you, thank you once more for being so candid with us about the way your life evolved as a family caregiver, as a mother uh, who lost a child to a mental illness. Um, and the way in which now, as a professional, you're helping others who've been through experiences that equate to that, um, similar experiences across a, a fairly broad spectrum. And now also, you're coming up with ideas of things need to do to be done. So first of all, I want to say thank you for all that you've said. And I also want to say, if any of these things that you've mentioned start to gain momentum i'd be absolutely delighted to run an epi- another episode of this show with you to talk about moving things forward along the lines that you've been discussing because i think that would be very helpful to people mm-hmm. and with with the kind of background you have as a professional and the other things we've talked about you are you have a kind of credibility that matters. And just to be very political, if we can get family caregivers to be organized in a political sense, then you will help me satisfy the goals of this talk show, which is to family caregivers to unite <laughs> in a political sense. So thank you very much. And I want to say... Um, Please keep up the good work. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being guest on the show. Our next episode will be Mothers for a Human Future. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around.